Okay, guys, we're starting episode seven of this podcast. And I got to tell you, by this point in the game, my producer and I have done a ton of interviews between us. Some you've already heard and some I can't wait for you to hear. And some that might not make it into the final edit of the show, but they were invaluable to the research and the writing of the show nonetheless. We've talked to women about their bodies, probed uncomfortable questions I would never normally ask a stranger. We've asked coworkers about their sex lives, with their consent, of course, and encouraged strangers to open up about secrets they won't even share with their spouses. But there's one question, more than any other, that seemed to set people on edge. A question that, when we asked it, it provoked laughter, fear, confusion, and sometimes even anger. The question was, do you eat everything you want to eat? I'm Amy Porterfield, and this is Talking Body. Now, when my producer first asked me this question, I'm one of the ones who got angry. Of course I don't eat everything I want to eat. That's unthinkable. No one does that. It felt like somebody had just asked me, do you rob banks in your spare time? Uh, no. I've worked for years to unlearn all of the rules that I have for myself around food. And these rules don't just come from the diets that I've tried, although they've certainly contributed. But who else remembers, eat this, not that. I've memorized the calories and fat content of dozens of name brand foods. I can rattle off Weight Watcher point totals for dishes at all of my favorite restaurants. It's like my own personal party trick that I never want to bring out at a party. I've told myself that one cookie after dinner is okay, but two is forbidden. I've bought into the zero-calorie noodles, the salad dressing sprays, and endless and endless non-fat cottage cheese. These are the foods that I told myself I must eat because they're good. The foods that I actually want to eat are bad, and that's the appeal. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed or sad or angry... I reach for those things as much for comfort as for punishment. Because if I'm feeling bad about myself, my indulgence in bad foods just reinforces that belief. Here's what some of the women we interviewed had to say on the subject. I used to diet when I was younger a lot, but my mindset about what is healthy and dieting in general shifted Uh, very much within the last, I would say, two, three years. That's when I stopped thinking about dieting in terms of losing weight. I think about diet in terms of having a healthy diet now. Because I feel guilty for eating stuff I want. I always feel a sense of guilt, like, oh, this is why I have this double chin that's out here prospering right now. Like, And so I feel that sense of guilt. So it's just like, maybe I should put that back. French fries are my love language. Like, that, you know, that's a feeling. That is like a, but I can't have them every day. I mean, there was years I didn't eat them at all and they're my favorite thing in the universe. Like if I was stuck on an island, I would eat French fries all day, but I couldn't eat them because I was trying to lose weight. And then after I lost weight, I was trying to maintain it. So then it was like this food that I loved, but like mozzarella sticks. I had mozzarella sticks for the first time in like five years during the pandemic, because I was like, I'm giving up, like it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was in high school, I did the South Beach diet with my stepmom for a little bit. Like looking back, like that was a fairly extreme diet of like eliminating certain foods for a period of time and not looking at food or, or a lifestyle as like a balance. It was more of like, okay, you cannot have this. Even though right now I have a much healthier relationship with my own body, but I know for years, uh, it made me feel very insecure because I didn't wait, didn't love my body. I didn't love the way that I looked. I felt overweight. So I feel like it made me feel vulnerable and a bit ashamed of myself. I am a bigger person and growing up, that was a whole lot that was used to define me. 
there were a lot of things I could do, but people would automatically assume that I couldn't do just because I was bigger. And I would watch these people kind of define my ability with my size and just not even be able to stand up to that because, you know, if they want to believe that I'm too big to accomplish X, Y, Z, there isn't really a way to change that except I actually go and accomplish X, Y, Z. So I focused more on getting those things done and I guess kind of proving to people that my size doesn't dictate my ability. I will just show you the ability and then you can decide whether you want to change your mind or not. For this podcast, I wanted to speak to someone who saw food in a totally different way than I did, whose relationship with eating was built on positive experiences such as creativity, exploration, and advocacy. Someone like a chef. My name is Julia Tertian. Um, What can I tell you? I have loved to cook my entire life. I really taught myself to cook through cookbooks and I dreamed of getting to work on them when I was an adult, and that dream has very much come true. Julia is not only an accomplished cookbook writer, she is also committed to expanding inclusivity in food media. In 2017, Julia published Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved, Eater's Book of the Year, which included contributions from over 20 contributors and raised over $20,000 for ACLU. In 2018, she founded Equity at the Table, a database of women and gender nonconforming professionals in the food space. Equity at the Table, which we talk about more during the interview, is inspired by the idea that it's better to build a longer table, not a higher fence. I was intrigued by Julia because despite her clear passion for creating and sharing food, I learned that she too struggled with some of the same issues I was facing. At first, I couldn't believe it. But reading her essay from her latest book all about feeling worthiness in our bodies, I felt a kinship with this woman who I had never met. Okay, so let's get right to it because in this new cookbook, which contains a personal essay, uh, it's called On the Worthiness of Our Bodies. And I want to talk about that because in that section, you talk about feeling shame and conflict about creating a book about food when you have a complicated relationship with food and your own body. So that really resonated with me <laughs> because it's a big reason I wanted to do this podcast. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, I'm first just so uh, happy I think that's the right word. I'm so happy to hear it resonated for you. Oh, and yes. I know the process of writing it was a deeply cathartic one. That essay went through, I don't know, maybe something like 12 different <laughs> variations, I get many it. different titles. Um, you know, I was really working through something. I continue to work through the same thing. And I'm I'm so happy you read it. Um, and I'm really happy for this opportunity to talk about it because I don't think we're the only two people that this kind of message resonates for. And I know this is stuff you're working through too. And I'm so excited yes. to listen to the other episodes and just hear more voices talk about this because it's so important. And I think I'm talking around something right now. And I think <laughs> what I'm actually talking about is just our relationships to ourselves and our bodies and therefore our relationships to each other. And a little bit of background on that essay. You know, I mentioned how much I've loved to cook my whole life. I've loved food. I've loved cookbooks, you know, happy, happy, happy food, food, food. <laughs> There's also been another story to that too. I've had a really fraught relationship with food and a really fraught relationship with my body. And I've at times have had a hard time reconciling, you know, I'm someone who loves to write recipes to give home cooks all these tools to make cooking at home feel as easy as possible, uh, to make gathering around your table with family and friends as easy and as happy as possible. But then sometimes I've also been the person who's had a really hard time with all that, who's been scared to eat some of the food I cook, who's been scared to walk around in this world and the body I live in. And I wanted to 
untangle that knot. It felt like a big knot that was just all wrapped up <laughs> and complicated. And so part of me untangling that was honestly writing a cookbook that is about healthy comfort food and really thinking about what those words mean. What does healthy mean? What does comfort mean? What does it mean for me personally to feel healthy in my body and comfortable in it? And what does it mean to feel those things and not be comparing myself to either past or future versions of myself yes. uh, to other people? Um, you know, so that essay really kind of gets into all of that. It's very much about really acknowledging and hopefully trying to dismantle diet culture. And it sort of asks where home cooking kind of fits into all of that. So yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, but it was so powerful. And, okay. So tell me this, you, uh, you're also the creator of Equity at the Table, a database of marginalized creators and chefs as a way of amplifying their contributions in the food space. So do you think that women have a harder time breaking into places like the culinary world because of their gender and how they choose to express it? I mean, that's like, that feels like a simple question, but I feel like it's really complicated. Um, I think, I think anywhere where there's a, a system of power, <laughs> I think anyone who's marginalized for any reason, whether it be gender or race or, um, you know, your, your, your status as whether you're a married person or whether you move through this world in a fat body or a smaller one, you know, any of these points of marginalization, I think become difficult to navigate. So um, yeah, I think absolutely women have had a hard time in many different industries, including the food industry. Um, and I think many women have had an easier time than other women within uh, those places. So I think, you know, it is, um, it's, it's that simple. I think like where there is power, there's, I think the potential for that power to be abused or, um, you know, held onto <laughs> and yeah. not shared. And I also think it's, it's, it's complicated because it's, you know, all of these different factors that come into it. I agree. Now, uh, this equity at the table, what do you think is like the biggest surprise that you've learned from this or your biggest takeaway or gift that you've received from sure. creating something like this? Yeah. Um, so yeah, equity at the table, you know, I started it with, with the support and, and, um, input and guidance from a wonderful advisory board. And it started, I guess it's been about, I should know this, about two and a half years or so now. And what it is, is quite simply, it's a database. Um, it's free to join and it's free to use. And when it started, my my intention and my my goal was for it to be used by anyone in you know, any position of power within the food industry or related to it. So, you know, maybe a magazine editor who's looking for someone to feature, maybe um, someone who owns a restaurant looking for a chef, maybe someone who's having a big event and looking for a caterer, you know, these kinds of things. You know, I really thought Equity at the Table could be this amazing place on the internet where you could go and find someone and you could find all sorts of people. And what I've come to learn from it um, which has been incredibly powerful is yet again, like another measurement for success. And for me, that unit of measurement with equity at the table has been community. And it's been the fact that um, members of the site and basically the site is, is available for anyone who identifies as a woman or a non-binary individual uh, to join if you identify as a person of color or you're part of the queer community. So that's a lot of people and all of these people now get to, you know, scroll on the site like anyone else and get to know each other. And I send um, like an email newsletter to members and that's been a way to sort of feel connected. Uh, we have like an awesome Instagram feed that um, Mimi Wilson, who's our one part-time employee, she runs that. And, you know, again, it's an opportunity for everyone to see each other and connect and yes. that sense of community that has been above and beyond just the best part of it. And that's helped me in other parts of my life to really reevaluate like my goals and, and how I measure success and, you know, what, what type of currency do I care about and, you know, want to invest in. And it just always comes back to community for me. 
Oh, all the time. I, I love that you see that in that. Tell me this. So if you have insecurities or you've had insecurities about your body or food in general, um, do these manifest when you're creating food for other people or creating recipes? Um, yeah, sometimes I think when I'm thinking about, um, particular ingredients and amounts of them, I think, you know, I think we all have a lot of different voices in our head (laughs) and, you know, they, they chime in at various times. And, you know, I know in the process of writing the recipes in this book, um, just a little background on the timing of it. When I was working on it, my, my wife, Grace, she had closed her business of 15 years, right. As I was working on the recipes. So she was entering this kind of in-between time and she offered to test all my recipes, which if anyone who's ever written a cookbook is listening, you know, that's like a major (laughs) and generous offer and to have her do that, you know, right in our kitchen where I could sort of see how it was going and the results and stuff. It was like this amazing experience. And it actually gave me a a lot of insight into, I think exactly what you're asking me, like, do these things come up when I write recipes? Because she would point out like, you know, this would be better with more butter. And I would be like, I think it's fine with just that little bit. And she's like, don't you want it to taste really good? And, you know, I was realizing like, oh, I'm holding back on like pleasure here. And like, what's, (sighs) what is, what's my thinking in that? Like, why am I doing that? Who's telling me that one tablespoon is better than two or three or whatever it might be, you know, writing recipes is like, such an act of control over food. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I'm going to tell you down to the teaspoon what to put. So it was really an amazing experience to let go in a lot of that and to really move more in the direction of pleasure and satisfaction and ease. Like, let me give you the version of this dish that is as easy to make as possible, you know, not restricted in any way, just easy. That was like my guiding, my guiding light, I guess. That feels so free. Like when you were saying that if I was putting together a recipe and now I can't cook, but I mean, if I was reading a recipe and I was following it and if I made it, I mean, if my husband said, I think it needs more butter, the first thing I think of is, Oh, Oh no, we're not, we're not adding more fat to that. Mm -hmm. Like right away versus like, Oh, would it, would it taste better? Would it be more enjoyable? My mind doesn't even go there. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you share that even from someone with your own expertise and experience. It's so interesting. Okay. So I've been dying to ask you this question because we've been talking a lot about this amongst ourselves while making this podcast. And it's this idea of, do you eat everything that you want to eat? So when I ask this question, some people have really strong reactions to being asked this. So when I ask you this, especially with your expertise, do you eat everything that you want to eat? Um, yes, I eat everything I want to eat and I am so grateful I get to. <laughs> I, I love that that was your answer. It's not, I do not eat everything mm. I want to eat. And the fact that you said that, and I know most people will see it, uh, hear us and not hear, see us, but you have a big smile, beautiful smile <laughs> on your face when you say that. Like, and like this, like, yes, yes, I do. Talk to me about that. Someone who I'm assuming you've dieted and you've, Mm -hmm. you've shared all having issues with your body and how you feel about yourself. How did you get to a place that you eat everything that you want to eat? I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to talk to you more about it because I absolutely want you to imagine that for yourself. (laughs) So if sharing this helps for that, yeah, by all means. Um, Yeah. For a long time, I didn't eat everything I wanted to eat you know, and that was informed by many things. One was I, for, I don't know, most of my adult life, you know, starting my freshman year of college, then for the next, you know, 10 to 15 years, I was in and out of Weight Watchers, which, um, I don't know, (laughs) I have mixed feelings about the whole thing, Right. but I, for me, I can only, again, speak from my personal experience. It at times felt very helpful to me and made me feel very in control in a department of my life where I felt out of control. And then that control became something that I don't think actually served me. And I was, because as the program uh, instructs you to, you know, I was counting everything and that landed me in a place of very restrictive eating, um, very limited eating. 
and very nervous eating and constant, constant calculation and like evaluation. So I wasn't really eating what I wanted to eat because it didn't necessarily fit within my, my, my points. And then that went on for so long that I became a little bit out of touch with what I actually wanted. And I was eating the things that I felt fit into this program and, you know, the things that I could eat a lot of without it, you know, I'm sure probably a lot of listeners are pretty familiar with the program. I don't have to get into it, but some things are worth less than others in points and it's this whole system. And so I was like, I think many people trying to find the things that were worth the least. And I was counting those for the most and, you know, just a lot of math and, <laughs> and difficulty Again, and yeah. Sisters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it got me to a place where I was really out of touch with what I wanted at all. And I feel like you've mentioned the term people pleasing a few yes. times and I, you know, I hear that and like a bell goes off in my head and I'm like, yep, yep. With you. Like, I think that's a, you know, another topic, but that informs a lot of this too. I think, you know, I definitely hold up my hands as like a fellow people pleaser. And I think when you go through life, trying to make everyone else around you feel happy and heard and seen and loved, because that makes you feel whatever, worthy, safe, whatever it might be. I know I have done that for a long time and that's not necessarily bad. Like I'm, I'm happy to, you know, make my loved ones feel happy and heard and seen. And, you know, those things mean a lot to me, but I was doing them at the expense of paying attention to what I wanted and what would make me feel happy and heard and seen. And the more I tried to extend those things to myself, as much as I do with other people, it helped me just get in touch with what I actually wanted specifically like wanted to eat <laughs> and you know I started to try and become a little bit less scared of those things and something that was really helpful for me in that period of time and continues to be helpful is um, reading intuitive eating that pretty yeah. seminal book listening to lots of uh, podcasts and conversations about intuitive eating getting to really understand it and the first step for me with that was yeah really getting in touch with what I wanted and trying as much as I could to be not so scared of it. And, you know, my whole career in writing cookbooks is trying to be really attuned to what other people want and trying to write recipes for those things. And I tried to really work on paying that much attention to myself. And, you know, in my new book, I, you know, people ask me a lot, like, what's your favorite recipe? And I'm like, no, I love all of them. Like, I want everything in the book. <laughs> like, this is a book you know, for everyone, but I wrote it in many ways for myself, right? Like, these are things I love. Like, I want every single page of it. It's and, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, well, thank oh, you so much. Absolutely. So, I, everyone needs to yeah. experience it. It's, it's this beautiful cookbook, but then it's also like all these things that we're talking about and just really getting a glimpse of, of you and your experiences. I, I absolutely love it. Again, it's called thank Simply you. Julia. And it's simply just a beautiful piece of work. So I cannot wait for those who are listening to experience it as well. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited for that too. So. Me too, me Thank too. Um, tell me this, you mentioned in your book, the idea of inheriting these issues from family or from society. And how did that manifest itself for you? And when did you first realize it? Mm. Um, I, I wish that my mom was sitting next to me and we could talk to you together about this because mm. this is something we're both um, continuing to navigate, I think separately and together. And it's kind of opened up a whole new conversation between us. Um, I would say, yeah, I think that I definitely have inherited so much of the stuff we're talking about. Um, I grew up in a home where you know, thinness was seen as incredibly valuable. It was equated with success and with worth. And both my parents, my mother and my father were on a series of different diets and plans and working with different professionals. And um, my mother in many ways made a career out of some of that. Both my parents worked in magazines and my mom worked um, for a lot of different magazines that promoted those kinds of messages. And you know, I think I hear a lot of people talk about when it comes to diet culture, so much of it is influenced by the media, right? By like the images you see and um, the kinds of stories we're told. And I grew up in a house where 
you know, my parents were very much part of making those images. <laughs> they worked in the magazine wow. business. And so it was fully not just, you know, on our dinner table or in her refrigerator where I saw the evidence of this, you know, if I was seeing, you know, low fat versions of this or that or non-fat versions or, you know, snack wells cookies or <laughs> those types of things. I feel like the word snack wells just like everyone has a reaction to it. Right away. <laughs> you just took me back. I saw the packaging. I saw yeah. everything. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't just in that sort of personal stuff in our home. It was also in my parents' professional life, wow. you know, in, in many ways, which is just, it's been a really interesting thing for me to just reflect on and to talk to them about. And, you know, I'm glad to be in a position with my, my family to have these like really honest conversations about it. And I feel like I've gone off of your question. <laughs> no, I, I don't think you have. And it's making me think about for, for sure, the thoughts I have and the insecurities, uh, they definitely manifested through my relationship with my parents in very different ways. And, you, you know, I love that you said, I wish my mom was sitting here and she could talk to you about this with me. And same with me, I could have my mom here and we could mm -hmm. talk about our experiences, but I couldn't have my dad sitting mm -hmm. here. He, mm -hmm. he takes it very personal and is very sensitive when I bring up the topic. Um, I just don't, we can't get on the same page about it, but there was an incident with my dad where I had lost a bunch of weight. I was in college and I've been losing weight since I was eight years old. So that's all I know is to mm -hmm. lose weight and gain weight. And I had lost a bunch of weight and I went, he's a firefighter. And I went to the fire station to go visit him at a holiday. He had to work and I showed up and I was feeling good and looking good. And I remember the exact words he said to me, he said, Amy, you have the whole world ahead of you now that you've lost this weight wow. doors are open to you. You can do anything now that you've lost the weight. And, and I don't fault him. He grew up with his own thoughts and feelings and experiences, but that's what I thought. Like if I lose weight, if I'm thin, the whole world opens up to me, but what does it mean when I gain weight? Yeah. yeah. It's that's such a, um, that's a powerful story. And, you know, I appreciate you being comfortable to share that because yeah. It's, it's so just, it's, that reveals so much about, you know, you, about your dad, about, you know, what the beliefs are about worth and possibility. And, you know, I think I very much for a really long time believed my life would start when fill in the blank, like when I lost this amount of weight, yes. when I fit into this particular size of jeans or something. And I, um, I don't know, I have a lot of compassion for, for my younger self mm. who, who truly believe that. And I'm grateful to be in a place where, you know, I, I'm not living in hope of a thinner future. I'm living in a place where I'm just really grateful to be in a healthy body, like end of sentence, <laughs> and, oh, you know, and to know that. that where all of that, um, that pressure and those values and that whole kind of just belief system came from and to understand that there's, there's more options, <laughs> you know, there's other systems and there's other values. And I think there's other people who, who believe it too. And, and yes. to find that community and to find that support is um, just really, really just I mean, to kind of use your dad's words, like that opens up a lot of possibilities. Yes. Yeah. It's such a great, different way to look at it for sure. Now you just said something that uh, made me think you said, you know, there's <laughs> other options, but uh, you wrote that a light switch went off for you one day when you realized that you've only ever felt two things, like speaking of options, you only felt two things, happy or fat. And oh my gosh, mm -hmm. when I read that, I was like, I feel like we are one in the same person and I'm sure we have dramatically different lives, but I'm like, are you my sister? Did you live my life? What's going on here? So can you dig into that a yeah. little bit? Happy or fat? Like, totally. what is that about? Yeah. I, um, that's really like powerful for me to hear how much that resonated for you. Oh. Because it, it, it did feel like, uh, you know, a big aha moment for me. And I think in trying to explain why, every time I've tried to explain it to someone, it's led to a conversation like this. And I've realized how not alone I am or not alone I was, you know, cause I think so much of everything we're talking about with diet culture for me personally left me for a long time feeling very lonely and very just by myself in these thoughts and not realizing, you know, I shared them with other people. Um, so in terms of this kind of like emotional binary, like happy or fat, it really hit me one day, like, 
as if, you know, like hearing like a song for the first time or something, I was like, oh my God, like this is it. And I realized that I had forever only experienced what I really came to understand were two things. I've only ever felt happy or I felt fat. And for me, that meant I had equated anything other than happy with feeling fat. And Mm -hmm. so I started to think about what does that actually mean? Like, does that mean anytime I'm upset or anxious or angry or scared or any of these things, instead of feeling those things, which are truly pretty uncomfortable to feel, I went to the uncomfortable feeling I knew best, which was, I feel, I feel fat. And I started to really just dig into that and think about two things. One, what, what is wrong with fat? Why have Ooh. I equated that with something negative? So first there's that. And the second was what, what are these other feelings I'm actually having and why am I not permitting myself to feel them? Why do I not trust myself to feel them? Why do I not trust myself to get through these feelings? And, you know, this was a really, really eye-opening thing for me. And I, I think when it comes to these kind of like big, like revelatory moments, like I'm always curious with other people, like what the logistics are around that. Like, so, so what do you do? Now you've had this thought, what do you do? And I did something that I think is like a little bit silly, but I think worth sharing. And I went online and I looked up um, like from a school supply website I found. I'm sure it's available in other places. I bought a poster, like one I've seen in many like classrooms, like when I was growing up. Um, and it's, it's actually on my wall over there behind me. I could show you later. Okay. But it's, it's a poster that is just um, a poster about emotions and feelings. Oh, like and all the emotions that you could possibly feel. Exactly. So it's like a picture of, I don't know, 20 or 30 different things, yep. you know, scared, embarrassed, whatever it is, timid. Um, and there's a picture of a kid next to each word, you know, with the facial expression <laughs> that means that feeling. And, you know, I've seen these posters before, cause I think, you know, it's important to teach kids about your feelings and emotions. And I realized I sort of missed that day at school, right. Yes. <laughs> and or I avoided it. And so I bought that poster and I forced myself to every time that I felt like, Oh, I feel fat. I paused. I didn't fight against it. I didn't try and not feel that. I just was, I just observed myself. I tried to become an observer and I thought, okay, you are feeling something right now. You're saying it's this thing called fat, but what are you actually feeling? And I walked up to the poster and I would like scan all the faces and I was like, oh, I'm feeling really, I don't know. I'm feeling, you know, pissed off because my like insurance company is giving me a hard time and you know they're not processing this thing and like oh what you're feeling right now is like really just frustrated with this like all this red tape right like this has nothing to do with your weight or your body or like how your genes feel and the more I did that the more I realized like usually I just use my body as like this default to absorb all these other things that I'm avoiding and the minute I have you know, started to really engage with my feelings, a lot of my negative feelings about my body went away. What came were a lot of hard feelings <laughs> to mm-hmm. process, you know, like, okay, now I really have to deal with like the insurance company or whatever it is. Sometimes it was that simple. And sometimes it was harder. Maybe it was really realizing, you know, a relationship in my life, you know, a friendship or a professional relationship, maybe maybe I wasn't getting what I needed out of it, or maybe I wasn't giving it what it needed. You know, it was facing things like that. And, you know, taking my body out of the equation helped me sort of like make my feelings about my body a bit more neutral and get to a place where I could think of it in a more positive way, but taking kind of weight and fatness out of the equation and also not making fat into a bad word. And that's been a really powerful thing for me and something I I continue to work towards. And yeah, I don't think I have all the answers on that, but I think just really, it's been valuable to be honest with myself and I'm finding great value in being honest with other people. Like if you asked me five years ago, you know, definitely more than that. And even maybe a year ago, if I would sit here and have this conversation with you as comfortably as I am, you know, I'm checking in with my body right now, like my heart rate is fine. (laughs) You know, I'm not anxious about this. And that's been a big change. And it's, it's led to a lot of feeling of connection. And yeah, you and I don't know each other, but I think 
in sharing this story and hearing how it, you know, landed with you and now getting to talk about it. Like, I feel very connected and that's powerful, right? Like it's really so powerful. I seriously, I feel like I have known you forever just by sharing, by you sharing your insecurities and your thoughts and your feelings and experiences about your body. I mean, mm. that is very powerful. But if we stop the interview right now, what you just shared, I'm not joking, full body chills around mm. this idea of making fat uh, mean everything and all these other emotions that we don't even explore. I think you just gave a gift to everybody listening. So well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. And um, I really appreciate that. And I also just want to, I don't know, in the spirit of, of, of gratitude for things being shared, I really need to just give a lot of credit where it's due. And that's to my wife, Grace, mm -hmm. who really encouraged this for me and I think saw before I could see for myself a possibility where I could feel these things where I could feel like fat wasn't a bad thing and I could feel better about my body and better about all of our bodies and you know a lot of this for me comes from my my marriage and our conversations so I just I just want to give Grace a, a shout out. She deserves <laughs> a shout out Grace because what a gift that she is to allow you to explore all of this or help you to explore all of this. And yeah. I know what you mean, having someone safe in your life to, to encourage you to look at things in different ways. It's, it's powerful. I know not everybody listening will have that, but those that do should really recognize that and take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. 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 You know, like the story about your dad and what he said, you know, I, I have versions of that with my parents and, you know, I wonder sometimes not to go backwards like we can't and it's sort of pointless but you know I, I do wonder about these conversations that stay with us like your dad in that moment and what would it have been like if his response had nothing to do with your weight loss right, right. like what what course would your life have taken yes if that pivot point had been a little bit different and then you know I say that without any blame or shame but just right. curiosity you know it, yeah it's very true. I think of things like that a lot. So it makes it, it makes perfect sense to to look at the moments that people open up your heart and allow you to see things in a different way. And then those moments that, uh, you know, that conversation went a certain way that will kind of always stick with you, whether <laughs> good or bad. And so I think we all have those experiences for sure. When Julia talked about feeling happy or fat, that knocked the breath out of me. It's like someone had finally put into words the way that being overweight overlays all of my other emotions and experiences. I can feel happy despite being overweight, or I can feel bad because I'm overweight. I've already spoken about my experiences with dieting, but one thing I haven't talked about as much is how dieting makes me feel. For most of my life, I've treated the quest to lose weight as something between a science experiment and an endurance sport. And here's the thing. As an ambitious, achievement-oriented person, losing weight makes me feel good, not just for the physical or sometimes health benefits, but as a goal attained, a finish line crossed. I've tied the number on the scale to the reward center in my brain so tightly I'm not sure I could ever entangle it, and sometimes that scares me. The diets I've bought into would say it shouldn't scare me. They'd tell me it's supposed to feel good. In fact, the diet industry sinks millions of dollars into building that connection between losing weight and feeling good. I love this body and what it's capable of, no matter what size. But I'll be honest, this version feels really good. I've lost 50 pounds with Jenny Craig, and so can you. I'm not a very fat actress anymore, and you don't have to be a very fat whatever it is you are. I'm Naomi, and I was born on South Beach. If you want to know how I stay in shape, I do it with the South Beach diet. Now you can lose weight fast and get into the best shape of your life. The safe and effective way to lose weight and maintain a healthy weight without hunger or deprivation. Millions of people all over America are saying 1048, the password for losing up to 10 pounds in 48 hours with the Hollywood 48-hour miracle diet. I love 
bread. I wasted way too much time being fat. I lost over 50 pounds on this lymph fast plan. It's not only about being thin, it's about feeling good and having energy. I exercise, I eat right. I have a shake for lunch every day. Life is full of challenges. Believe me, I know. And being overweight didn't help. Nutrisystem was there for me. They helped me, and they can help you too. Anna, Anna, how did you do it? Crispa, baby. Anna, the ultimate comeback. Make yours. However, most modern research seems to agree that dieting as we practice it today is largely a myth. According to psychologist Tracy Mann, who wrote Secrets from the Eating Lab, the last two decades she has spent running that lab have proven that trying to change your body type is just not realistic. Your genes, she asserts, set an optimal weight range for your body. And trying to exist outside of that range will force your body to shed or conserve energy in order to return to its equilibrium. When I hear this, it makes me feel frustrated and afraid. I don't want to relinquish control, even to my own genetics. It's much more seductive to believe that if I find the perfect alchemical equation of food, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle, I can be any size I want to be. Unfortunately, it's exactly this kind of thinking that can lead to more dangerous forms of restriction and control. Orthorexia isn't as widely known as its cousins, anorexia and bulimia, but it's just as harmful. This eating disorder centers around a need to control the quality of your food as a means to being healthy and often goes hand in hand with excessive exercising. What makes this disorder so insidious is that it begins with a perfectly rational premise. After all, eating healthy and watching out for your body are perfectly reasonable things to do when you're going to live in that body for 80-ish years. But in people with orthorexia, this reasonable desire spirals into obsession. What to eat, what time to eat, where did it come from, what is it paired with, and so on. What fascinated me when learning more about orthorexia was the level at which the disorder is tolerated or even encouraged by the public. As one researcher put it, people are ashamed of their anorexia, but they actively evangelize their orthorexia. To learn more, I sat down with Anna Sweeney, a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating specialist, and the owner of Whole Life Nutrition Counseling. Anna is an expert in the treatment of individuals struggling with eating disorders, disordered eating, and emotional eating. Here's what she had to say. Thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. I'm delighted to be with you. This is going to be so fun because I've read your bio and I know you have a wealth of education and experience working with nutrition and disordered eating, but I'd love to know where this journey started for you. Like, how did you know that this was the work for you and how did it affect your relationship with food? So I, I will say I've had the good fortune of never actually personally experiencing um, an eating disorder or disordered eating. I was diagnosed with MS when I was 15 years old. Um, and in the subsequent years, my baby sister, Katie, went on to develop an eating disorder. Uh, and as I moved, I mean, I have, very, I have a very specific memory. My senior year, uh, Katie and I were going to the mall and she left, she was an avid journaler, journaler and had left her journal open on her bed. And it said, well, I guess I have an eating disorder. Mm. She got her into the car and I yelled at her for the half hour drive that, it, you know, it took for us to get them all. You're so beautiful. You're so smart. You're so good at sports. Everybody loves you. Why would you do this? I, and I give myself some grace for the fact that I was 18, um, yeah. but totally the wrong response. Um, I went to college, my initial I suppose, um, professional dream was to be a sports broadcaster. And then I stopped being able to wear high heels and I transferred colleges. I came back home. 
because I, I was I was sick and I came home to a sister that I actually didn't recognize. And I'm not speaking about physically necessarily, but just spiritually, my sister was was gone. Uh, and so I decided that I was going, I decided I was going to go to school to become an eating disorder dietitian. And I graduated college in two and a half years and did what I, you know, set my mind on. Wow. So your sister was a huge part of that. That's a, that's a beautiful story. I'm so glad you shared that. Now your website says that you offer weight inclusive nutrition services. What does that mean? And how does it differ from more traditional services? The way I was conventionally trained is in this weight centric model where we point to weight as the primary uh, force and factor behind all wellness or illness, which is one of the reasons why weight stigma is such a terrible thing because people are missed for what is actual pathology underneath um, judgments about body size. And so when I talk about being weight inclusive, I am talking about the fact that I'm going to respect every human who comes into my practice and give them all of my expertise, um, regardless of their body size. And I will be an advocate and I will be an ally uh, as someone with thin privilege. I don't know what it's like to live on this planet in a larger body. I don't know what it's like to be subject to weight-based discrimination. And I do know that it is a formative experience for a lot of humans who experience eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, So I am here for all of the bodies. I love that. When we read that, I thought, Oh, she's onto something there for sure. That's really cool. I am an emotional eater. So the reason I've struggled with weight my whole life since I've been a really little girl is that when I have anxiety, when I feel depressed, when I am scared, when I am lonely, Mm -hmm. I always have turned to food. Now, Mm -hmm. as I'm getting older and working through this, I turn to food less, Mm -hmm. but up until a few years ago, it was every single time. Mm -hmm. I'm curious is this considered a disorder? Do I have disordered eating? So as a dietitian, I'm not a diagnostician, um, but I would ask if, if you feel like the nature of your interaction with food was disruptive to your life or to your quality of life, if thinking about food was a big part of your day, um, if you were operating with lists of food as good or bad, Um, or allowed yourself to have certain foods at certain times, but not others. And these are all very typical kind of diet things that we hear Mm -hmm. in popular culture. The diet industry is selling disorder. So if you feel like any of those boxes were checked, then that sounds like a, a disordered, dysregulated at the minimum experience with food. I think that's, it, it's interesting to hear from you and I appreciate your approach or your insight around that because yeah, I would answer yes to many of those more extreme years ago before I started doing this work, but still they show up uh, every day. And I guess my question is how can listeners begin the process of identifying and breaking down some negative eating patterns that they have. Maybe some of the listeners have the same kind of issues I have, or maybe something totally different, but how do you even begin to identify and break them down? So I think the first thing that I actually want to start with is speaking to the fact that interacting with food as a response to feeling any sort of uncomfortable feeling, be it anxiety or depression or stress or whatever, is a really, really practical response eating, the actual act of eating elicits a dopamine response. So if you have been feeling less than well, and then you eat a thing that maybe is a thing that you wouldn't eat on like, like in a normal time, maybe it's not, maybe it's just like normal food, but you are giving yourself permission to interact with it in a certain way. You're getting a dopamine hit. You're, you are literally doing something that is self-soothing. So I really would want to offer to anyone who engages in emotional eating, which is a very normalized, but totally vilified experience, 
Yes. Like there are chemical reasons that there is a comeback for that. It's not, it's not a willpower thing. It's, it's none of that. There's a reason that using food to manage emotional experiences is effective. Are there other yeah. strategies? Most certainly. And yes. compassion first, right? You're human. You're doing this thing that works in some ways probably more effectively and certainly quicker than almost anything else. So yeah. Amen. I, I love, I was hoping you'd go there, but I didn't want to lead you because you are the expert here. But I do think that in many ways it has gotten me through some really hard situations where definitely I could have chose a different way. And I think I do that more so now than ever, yep. but I also was taking care of myself in the moment. And I think Great. a lot of people have talked about that during this pandemic that mm -hmm. uh, one of our guests, Nicole Walters was on the show and she talked about, look, I've got a few extra pounds during COVID and it was my way of coping and I'm going to love my body no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really healthy way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. I, so, I, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I, I wish that we didn't live on a planet that vilified interacting with food as though it wasn't just a matter of resource because it is, there are a million ways to engage in self-soothing practices if eating is one of yours, it is safe and it is allowed. And if the relationship, the nature of your interaction with food doesn't feel great, there's, there's work to be done. But yes, kudos to you for doing this thing that allowed you to feel a little bit better. Like, I think that's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. So my, in terms of recommendations, um, and obviously for humans who are experiencing emotional eating, we need to acknowledge that like emotions aren't going anywhere. We have been largely separated from other humans for the last 11 months. We're all feeling all of the things. And that's, you know, that's okay. If food is part of the strategy, God bless, like be kind first. For humans who, who I work with, who talk about emotional eating in a way that is distressing and taking up more of their life than not, I get really curious about adequacy of eating. Are you getting enough fuel throughout the day? So a lot of people that I talk to say, like, I really don't have an appetite until I get to whatever time and then I'm super hungry or whatever, uh, or I feel super stressed and then I'm going to go to food our bodies are looking for fuel all the time and we need more food than what pop culture or my fitness pal is going to tell any of us. Nobody who is an adult needs 1200 calories. That's enough fuel for a four-year-old child. Like we are being sold a false bill of goods when we are being told to engage in practices that are diagnostically like could be utilized to suggest the existence of an eating disorder. And like, this is why I think diet culture needs to burn a, fi a fiery death. It will not, but I will still be here. Um, but the biggest tip, so the biggest thing is adequacy and then really breaking down rules. Are you holding up one food as being a thing that you can't have? Or is there a long list of things that you can't have? Is there a long list of things that would make you better, smarter, faster, whatever? Um, what would it look like if food was just more neutral? What would it look like yes. to take things off of the, like the sexy food shelf and just put them at eye level so that we have the opportunity to choose if you want to have a delightful historic, what has been historically sexy food. And I use the expression sexy food to describe a thing that, you know, like you put it on the shelf way up high and you don't tell your friends or your neighbors that you're having it and you don't necessarily want to have it in front of other people, but it, like you have your own little sexy time with this food. <laughs> food doesn't, like food is wonderful and food can be super sexy. I'm not saying that it can't, but like that kind of relationship where it feels like food is bossing you around. I just want to take a giant step back. What would it be like to take it off the shelf. How, how can we neutralize those foods? It is rare that I hear someone talk about needing to 
utilize food for emotional relief and then they go to consume a, a food that is elevated by wellness culture. Yes. Okay. So I want to switch gears a bit. And I've got a question that I'm trying to tackle on this podcast as, as all my listeners know, I'm a student on this podcast. I'm not the expert. That's why people like you need to come on here and, and help us with some of these hard questions. But I want to know if I can love myself and accept my body and still want to change my body. Can those two things exist together? I'd love to know your view. I believe that body love is a prerequisite for nothing. So if we are waiting for everyone to love their bodies all the time, we are just going to be waiting. Um, I think it is, a, we live in a very hard world um, in terms of being owners of bodies. People have feelings about bodies and as we were just speaking about, like the ideal body has changed from what he or she was years ago and will change again. Um, and acknowledging that you don't, you don't have to love your body to take care of it. You don't have to not want your body to change. And particularly if you are living in a marginalized body and you wish for your body to feel a little less marginalized so that you can feel like a little bit more comfortable or not either way like it's okay for you to wish for your body to change i believe that it is possible to have that desire for a changed body and still actively choose the one that you have right now and actively choose to take care of the one that you have right now um body acceptance is a little bit like gravity like i don't have to love that i'm sitting down because I'm on earth, right? I might want to float, but alas, gravity exists. By practicing acceptance, not to say I love this piece of my body, I love the entirety of my body, I love my body just for existing, although it is worthy and does, like needs no um, invitation to be allowed to be completely adored on this planet. Right. I, practicing acceptance we don't have to again we don't have to elevate one part and say i love this you don't have to you can just choose to go from a place of acceptance to then make another decision that's about like honoring what feels best for you oh so well said and i i love what you just said about um actively choosing your body that's a concept that i've never heard like Every tell day. me a little bit more what that means, actively choosing your body. So and I'm, I will speak to this as a disabled person. Um, I'm at a phase in my disease where my, you know, my, my every day is different from the day before, which is very trippy and very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And uh, okay. I, then I will tell you a story. Get ready because this is a little bit long. Um, okay. I love love high heels so much, so much. I stopped being able to wear heels. I think in 2013, it was like a little bit sketch and not safe. Um, I had this beautiful collection of shoes though. And I was like super not interested in not continuing. I don't think I stopped buying high heel shoes. Like I would go in to the shoe department sometimes put a heel on my foot and look at it just like just to look at my foot with this pretty shoe on or take a couple of steps um and i i didn't stop buying shoes that i couldn't wear for about two years i am wow. a super sane person in all of the other <laughs> no, ways but i get it but i, I get was it. not i wasn't able to accept that my body was not a body that was going to be wearing heels in the foreseeable future so for two years, I spent an embarrassing amount of money like on shoes that I could not wear. I had a collection in my closet that ended up just becoming this wall of should. I should be able to do this. If I'm going to be respected as a professional, if I'm going to be attractive to my partner, if I'm going to be da, 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 all of these stories that I had made up about being a person who wears heels, 
then I have to be able to continue to have high heels, which right. in retrospect is obviously not a real thing, but I didn't right. get rid of but my still. shoes. I didn't get rid of my shoes. I didn't stop buying them for two years. I didn't get rid of them for another year and a half after that. Super sane. This is grief, right? I was grieving this. I was grieving this disabled body. I was grieving the changes to my body. I was grieving, you know, letting go of this idealized picture of what I thought that I was going to be. It takes a long time and body, body grief and ultimately body peace is about meeting your body where it is. It doesn't mean that you love it. I hate actually, I, I have quite a lot of disdain for the expression body love. Um, because I don't think that's a destination. I don't think it's a realistic destination. Similarly to how, like, I love my dog, right? I have this old dog and sometimes he like goes to the bathroom in my house. I don't love that. I don't love every part of my dog. Uh, say, I like, I'm married. I love my husband dearly. Do I love everything that happens between the two of us? Of course not. If we have an, this relationship with our bodies that is the longest relationship that we have, we are setting ourselves up if we are having body love as this final destination. It's just not. And so, of course, I hear people say, I want to change my body and I don't want to accept this body. Okay. I, like, I hear you. What is the next, you know, kind thing that you can do? And you might not be ready to not go on that next diet, to not do you know this next thing that will disconnect you further from your body that is so not mine to decide as you are ready and as you are wishing to make peace with your body your body is resilient and ready to make peace with you yeah oh, so well said so well said Okay, final question. Going forward with this interview, what are some of the ways that you want the women listening to this podcast to think about their relationship with food? I think similar to, you know, relationships with body. The first thing I'm going to say is that your relationship with food is just that. It's your relationship with food. It is so hard to be an eater on this planet right now because everybody has an opinion about what is good, what is bad, what is going to heal you, what is going to like be the end of you. Um, and if you are in a place where you are outsourcing a lot of your body wisdom in terms of navigating your experience with food, I welcome you to being, you know, an eater on the planet right now. It is hard. And uh, I assure you that there are some ways that we can make it a little bit easier. Some of even noticing, you know, who, who are the people who are motivating your, you know, your food choices, who are, who are the people that are behind the decisions that you make in terms of self-care? Are they interested in your well-being? Do they, you know, do they care about you in the long run? Um, and this is a process, right? If you have not been practicing intuitive eating um, from the time you were, a, you know, a baby, if your experience with food got disrupted, and to be quite frank, um, I don't know very many humans who have made it from childhood to adulthood without having, uh, you know, a relationship with food hiccup. If I mean, yes. hiccup is a tiny word, but right. you know, hiccup to like avalanche. Um, eating this, this is a hard thing because so many humans have feelings and I trust your body. I trust that your body can tell you what works for it and what doesn't work for it. I trust that your body ultimately doesn't need someone else to tell you how to do it. Um, you can certainly utilize guidelines from other people if that feels really helpful and my, my deep wish is ultimately that you land in a place where you're checking in with yourself about one, like, do you enjoy the, the manner in which you're interacting with food? Does it feel good? Does it taste good? Is this satisfying and nurturing of your whole self? And if the answer is no, 
stay curious because there is, there's, there's work to do and you can reclaim that space. Oh, you can reclaim that space. Amen to that. Anna, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And tell the listeners where they can learn more about you. Sure. Um, come hang out with me on Instagram, which is like my new favorite toy. Um, I am at Dietitian Anna. I run it myself. So if you send me a message, I will actually probably respond. Um, but I, you know, I'd love to connect. It's funny, Julia and Anna were coming from such radically different worlds when it came to food, but their messages are run through with a common thread. Food can make you happy. It sounds like such a simple concept, but it's one that still feels completely unreachable to me. The work I've been trying to do in unlearning a lot of this stuff has to do with changing my relationship with food to one that is more neutral. Food is a resource. It's a tool that keeps my body going so I can experience all the things I want to experience. But after talking with Julia, I have to ask myself, what would it look like to celebrate food? Not celebrate with food, but just revel in the simple act of preparing a meal for myself without thinking once about the fat content going into it. Hearing Julia talk about eating everything she wants to eat with a huge smile on her face because the experience is hard won for her. I'm jealous. I want that. I'm still trying to figure out if I can love myself and still want to change myself, and I don't quite have the answer to that. But one thing that became clear is that wanting to change myself can't be a good thing if all it's doing is giving me permission to dismiss my current body as a work in progress. I want to actively choose my body, this body. I want to wake up and choose it every day. I want to choose the food that makes me happy because it makes me strong, because it gives me energy, and yes, because it tastes good. Am I there yet? Not even close. But this episode gave me permission to stop seeing my relationship with my body as a destination. And I've got to tell you, that really feels like a win. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% chance production.